I'm Anna Wynn, and you're listening to Critical Literary Consumption, a podcast where I ask my guests, who are writers, poets, and scholars, about their reading and writing practices. Some topics I explore are, what is the author responding to? What are the possible tensions between author, text, and audience? Whose interpretations matter? What could be a miscitation? And how language is used and constructed? My guest today is Morgan Taltsey, a citizen of the Penobscot Indian Nation, and is the author of the critically acclaimed story collection, Night of the Living Res from Tin House Books, which won the New England Book Award, was the finalist for the Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers, and is the finalist for the 2023 Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction. His writing has appeared in Granta, The Georgian Review, Shenandoah, Triquarterly, Narrative Magazine, Lit Hub, and elsewhere. The winner of the 2021 Narrative Prize, Talty is an assistant professor of English and creative writing in Native American and contemporary literature at the University of Maine, Orano, and he is a faculty at the Stone Coast MFA in creative writing, as well as the Institute of American Indian Arts. Talty is also a prose editor at the Massachusetts Review. He lives in Levant, Maine. So Morgan, I'd like to begin by asking how Night of the Living Res came to be. In your acknowledgments, I may note that 10 of your stories have been published in various journals and magazines between the years 2017 and 2020. But we know now that the book has 12 stories. So I want to know where Get Me Some Medicine and Half-Life written specifically for the book? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm trying to think if Get Me Some Medicine... Get Me Some Medicine actually was in... The original book um and it was placed eventually it was one of the okay. few that wasn't published originally mm-hmm. i think over a day ran it before the book came out and then half-life actually interestingly enough was not in the book that i sent tin house um half-life was actually my attempt to try to like overly connect the stories so it was more novel like because mm. so many agents had you know, before I had an agent, they were like, if you made this more into a novel, I'd maybe be able to sell it or something like that. Um, And so Half-Life was my attempt to do that. Because when you read Half-Life, Half-Life is the story that's like the one that speaks the most to the others directly. Like the others are, you know, like Safe Harbor, for example, has a line about D saying he's the one who saw it, you know, referring to the final incident in the living res. But you know, even that is like, it, it doesn't say that that's what it is. Um, mm-hmm. But Half-Life was really this, I don't know, like trying to connect it all. And so I left it out. And when Tin House bought the book, it had 10 stories. And it's funny, it's like, every writer here is that if you're going to write a story collection, they're like, okay, you got to publish some of these stories. And then you publish the stories and then the publishing house gets the book and they're like, well, I wish you hadn't published all these stories. So we'd have some to publish. So it's like right. this weird paradox. Um, mm-hmm. So they were like, do you have any others? And I was like, yeah, I do. And I found four, two from David's point of view and two from D. Mm-hmm. And they took the two D stories, which were Half-Life and in a field of stray caterpillars. So that one also wasn't originally in it. But yeah, the book just sort of came into being sort of organically. I've spoken about this and I didn't plan for it to become what it became. It just sort of turned into this non-linear, linear at times collection yeah. that has an overarching feel of a novel, but is also uh-huh. stories. I had 
read the reviews before the book arrived on my doorstep in Germany. And the word stories, I thought, okay, so it's a collection of short stories. But when I finished the first two stories, I thought I might be missing something because I actually thought I was reading a novel, not a story or a story collection. I only mentioned this because I remember in one of your interviews, you, you mentioned that if someone were to teach one of your stories, you could actually teach it separately from the collection. I bring this up because um, you mentioned that it wasn't really straightforward or linear. But I, I, I love the idea of a story collection that has a recurrent characters and themes. And I wondered if someone were to teach it and um, excerpts and extracts from it, I feel like we would actually lose a lot of the kind of the layers of the stories that you're narrating. So specifically, I wanted to ask you, why did you jump around with time and chronology? And did you purposefully write sparingly, hoping that some of the other stories would help the reader fill in the details? Yeah, I'll answer the second part first. Is I like writing sparingly just because mm-hmm. as a reader, I like I like to meet the writer halfway. I like to meet the storyteller halfway. And I feel like there's something like really good about doing that. You know, I, I just came off of a five-day teaching at a low residency MFA program. And um, we were talking about description and it's like, you know, I don't want to be told what somebody looks like from the tip of their head down Mm -hmm. to their toes. You know, I want some space um, to visualize my own sort of creation of them. So that's why I write sort of sparingly as I like, I don't know, it's just, it it appeals to me. Um, Mm -hmm. And then as for jumping around with time and chronology, I feel like the most honest answer to that is you know the way i view a short story is that it gets its power from what's left out what's not mentioned and if you take the stories and you separate them like if you break them up and you have all the david stories in chronological order and then you have all the d and fella stories in chronological order there's this like gap of time missing in between so if you put the book together in that way and somebody read it they would be like something is wrong here. Something is not working. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what I did is I recognized that gap and I was like, well, how can I minimize that feeling? And I was like, well, what if I just sort of, sort of like layered them? So we did a D story and then a David story and a D story Mm -hmm. and a David story. And there's just a, you know, the gap of that, that huge gap of time is now hidden. What's buried and you don't really see it. You feel it eventually just growing longer and longer as the book goes on. Mm-hmm. And that gap of time ultimately becomes this question of, you know, what happened, right? Like that's what the reader I think is after in the whole narrative. So that's why I chose to do it out of out of order was really because it wouldn't have worked the other way. It would have been... Um, it just would have been missing too many pieces. And so I chose to kind of do some sleight of hand, I suppose, to kind of hide the fact that that was missing. And it, and it, and it happened to work. My, my approach to storytelling is like every story always requires its own needs, its own mm-hmm. sort of requirements. And this was just how this one worked. Mm-hmm. I, I really loved how you wrote Paige because I felt like when I first read it, I had a lot of questions about Paige, the character, but I felt like Riri kind of told me what I assume. I don't know if if 
you actually in the story collection you told us what what was kind of the traumas and what happened to Paige, but you really like the idea of threading it, the characters that you don't really know. Well, I feel weird for saying this because a lot of the stories are based on intergenerational trauma too. But I like that you didn't flesh out everything. I don't like I just felt it was really rewarding to keep reading. And your story collections, it reminds me of Asako Serizawa's The Inheritors and um, Akio Kumarasami's uh, Taf Gods, I think. They also write this kind of multiple stories, but they center on particular characters, but you could read them separately. It's not chronological. Sometimes I'll find writing nowadays is very overwrought. Like everything seems very explanatory. It doesn't leave a lot of mystery for the, the reader in the text. And that was something that I noticed was quite moving in your story collection. Well, thank you. I, I want to approach this next question delicately. Um, I want to ask about the theme of drug use in your novel. When I wrote this question to you, I wasn't sure how to phrase it without essentializing it because I actually think the drug use was extraneous. It wasn't really the main point of the stories, but it's more about how how trauma happens and it's narrated and how it's lived. That trauma could be linked to drugs, but I I just, I don't know how to ask this question without it sounding reductive. And I'm thinking a lot about this kind of controversies with um, uh, pretendians in academia. I lived in Canada for <laughs> almost four years, and so it, it seems like every year there'd be a couple of people who kind of narrate this kind of drug use on the reservations and family abuse. And it turns out that they were just kind of stereotyping a certain narrative about indigenous peoples, and they turned out not to be indigenous at all. I wonder how, what your thoughts were when you wrote your stories. Did you find yourself asking if readers would focus too much on drugs and addiction rather than the relationships that play out on the reservation that you're describing? Do you think of your writing as subverting the tendency to read trauma and class solely through drugs? That's a great question. Um, I think I'd start by just saying that those two, like those themes of addiction are just things that I grew up very familiar with. And so it was sort of like I had to write about them, like they had to be there. But, you know, I always come back to this idea that this, or not this idea, but this statement that this book is just a sliver of a sliver of the larger story of Penobscot culture. Mm -hmm. In, in history. Um, and, you know, these, these characters happen to be trapped or happen to use drugs and have addictions that mm -hmm. stem from what I would say is intergenerational trauma, but also trauma that's probably happened in their lives. And I think mm -hmm. we can look at drug use across the world. Um, and regardless of race and ethnicity, you know, it's, it probably almost always comes back to some type of trauma, some type of inherited trauma. But for indigenous people, you know, it's it's an issue in the same way it's an issue for non-indigenous people. And like that was how I kind of approached it. it was like, I don't want to make this an indigenous thing. Mm -hmm. I'm sure people would read it in that way. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I didn't try to fight that. I don't try to fight how readers read a piece of my work. Um but I do, I do think about it, you know, mm -hmm. and I wonder, I'm like, I wonder if I could have done better. That's always the question, you know, can we do better in our work? For me, it was really all about 
putting the characters first and putting the idea of emotion first, because like there are things we can't entirely experience from another person's perspective, but the thing that helps us connect to whatever that experience is, is emotion. Like at its very core, we all experience that at the same level. Um, but what propels that emotion into existence might be different, right? You know, the sadness that indigenous people feel or the hatred that indigenous people feel. We can relate to hate. We can relate to, to sadness, but we might not be able to relate to the source of where that hatred comes from, which might be colonialism or the way federal Indian policies have affected a specific tribe. Um, and so my thing was, is like, okay, well, how do I make readers who are native and non-native connect to these people? And it was always about putting these people's emotions first mm -hmm. and then building around them and looking for opportunities to, you know, put in drug use or put in cultural elements. So that way I'm not like building off of an archetype, but mm -hmm. rather I'm building off of a human being, you know, a person mm -hmm. who has specific needs and wants in the same way that everybody else does. Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel like in that way, it is, it is subverting that tendency to, to read trauma in class mm -hmm. solely through drugs. I think it's, you know, the book is asking us to look at trauma in class as being um, products of colonialism mainly, but the thing that created the emotion. And it's just, it's, it's been fascinating to see how many people relate to the characters in the book who aren't native. Like I did a reading at the Freeport Public Library and there were about 70 people there and they were all, you know, they were all older white, white people. Um, and they always come up and ask and, and talk to me and they're like, oh, this, you know, reminded me of this, or I was connected to this. And it, it, but it, none of it is ever in like a hackneyed like mm -hmm. stereotypical way. They're not like, oh, there are some writers who basically what I'm saying is it's like, I didn't, I avoided writing misery porn is the thing. Like <laughs> yeah. that's what I tried. That's what yeah. I tried to avoid. Um, mm -hmm. And it feels like it worked. So mm -hmm. I strive to ask these kind of questions delicately because I, I know a lot of people talk about how like a hegemonic white audience seem to only want to hear trauma, like yeah. trauma porn. And I I know these kind of experiences are important, but I, I just wonder how writers might be compelled to write a different type of trauma without kind of fetishizing pure pain. I had some joy. I think there are moments I laughed. I don't know if it was appropriate moments, but there was thoughts I thought it was really heartwarming, like, I don't know if I'm misreading your source. <laughs> oh, no, I, I, yeah, I think it, it's funny. People hear me read and then after they hear me read, they're like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that was funny because I think there are hilarious moments in this. I mean, like, you know, yeah. and, and I think there are various ways we can read and react to it, which mm -hmm. is what I love about literature yeah. is like, it's not a stagnant, stilled thing. Mm -hmm. Um like burn. I find it absolutely hilarious that Thelis's hair got frozen into the snow. Like that is just like, like that is just the most absurd thing in the world. And you look at like the details that are left and, yeah. and just like the contradiction of it all. And it's just like, it's yeah. like, you don't know what to do with it. So you have to laugh. Right. And I really thought based on your title, I thought it was like a zombie story. And then burn is your first story. I thought it always 
always about the reader's first impressions. But when I read that scene, I thought, is, is this supposed to be funny? Because I, I'm actually laughing. So, <laughs> so. And it was also, uh, I won't spoil it for the reader. I think readers or listeners should read it. But I found it so, like, it's just a myriad of emotions just reading even one story. I think that's a testament to you, you as a writer. I think I like that an emotion can't be stagnant. I like that it moves up and down, up and down. Was, well, thank you. Sorry if I'm fangirling. I really no, no, that's there, okay. <laughs> there were just some, there were just some stories I reread. They were just so moving, especially the one where he visits his mother in the facility. That was one of my favorite stories. So, and well, thank I, I you. Can, well, we're talking about it because um, <laughs> I, I always try to do a bunch of readings from the author's interview, so that way I don't repeat needlessly repeat questions. There was something that really struck me in your exchange with Chelsea Hicks. That was the conversation that was published in Electric Blit. Um, you mentioned this dichotomy between we and I and collectivity and individuality. Hicks said that you're alluding to the darker side of community. The insistence of the idealized community actually impacted David's own problems in, in the stories, whether inherited or not. I'm especially thinking of David when he visits his mother in the hospital. The, the story I'm talking about is Safe Harbor. He's narrating that his mother is native and she has trauma. So do I. I'm the one who saw it, but she thinks she has more. She doesn't say that, but she thinks it. Maybe she's right. Maybe older natives have more trauma than younger ones. These very few statements say so much. Can you expand more in your conversation with Hicks in relation to this kind of comparison that you're trying to make? To you, what does it mean to inherit trauma, to narrativize one's trauma, all the while trying to think of your community and your elders? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I loved my conversation with with Chelsea. We've done a couple conversations and they've always been really good. And I'll just give a quick shout out if folks haven't read her story collection, A Calm and Normal Heart, and I definitely recommend doing so. You know, to inherit trauma is to not know you've inherited it, right? I think that's the most fascinating thing. And I feel like it's like you come into knowing you have trauma and you figure out how to manage it or you never do, and you are kind of stuck with feeling it, or or you come to know you have trauma and you still can't figure out how to deal with it. I just always think of that experiment that scientists did with mice, um, mm -hmm. where they had older mice, and every time they sprayed this little cherry, I don't know, it was like a scent, you know, a couple seconds after that, the floor would electrocute their feet, and they would jump up. So eventually they grew accustomed to once they smelled the cherry, the, the smell, mm -hmm. they would start jumping because they, they were anticipating that electric shock. They found that when the mice had children, the children never having experienced that electrocution, when they smelled that smell, they inherently jumped. So they inherited the trauma of their, of their, mm -hmm. their parents. And that's, you know, what happens to us is we don't know it. And, you know, we, we have to deal with it in some way and to narrativize that trauma while trying to think of your community and, you know, those who came before you is hard, right? Because mm -hmm. it's like, I, I just feel like everybody coming back to this idea of individuality, like we all experience trauma and pain in our own way. And I don't think we can compare traumas like, right. like we can, you know what I mean? But yeah, like the yeah. fact that we feel a particular pain, I don't think should be quantified, right? Mm -hmm. It should just be like, oh, you're hurting, right? You know, let's help you. 
let's not put this other person before you, but like, let's like, I mean, unless you're at the emergency room and somebody really, really needs <laughs> help, right? For you. But the point, you know, thinking about that, that mental and body trauma that mm-hmm. we experience, we have to think about it in an individual way. But then we also have to reconcile the, the collective sense of it yeah. is because others are experiencing it. And it's mm-hmm. like, where do you find that balance? Um, for me, when it comes to trauma, you know, I, I really wanted to, I wanted to focus on it, but I also wanted to highlight the ways in which indigenous communities have sort of like adopted the attitudes of colonizers and have also perpetuated, you know, pain against their own people. Burn is the, you know, that opening story clearly delineates that sense of class, right? There's him and fellas who take the bus, then there's those who drive their cars to the stores. Thinking about that division and it's, and it's, and it's a newer thing that's happening in indigenous fiction, um, you see it in There, There by Tommy Orange at the very end, right? It's all indigenous people who who have fallen into that swarm of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, people who were participants, people who were not participants, people who were individuals and then collectives. It was just, you know, really, really wonderful. And so for me, it's it, it's really about thinking about the divisions that we've put up against mm-hmm. each other. Um, because if we don't pay attention to those, I think we're in trouble. I think right. if we keep projecting that the issues, that all of the issues are solely external, we're left with this internal stuff that I don't think we're able to fix eventually. Mm-hmm. And I and I think I'm guilty of this too. Sometimes when we say the word community, I think it is like solves everything and it, it doesn't. The understanding of the word is it's an idealized place where people can hold each other accountable. But in your stories, all the stories take place on the reservation, right? I think there are a couple of uh, times when they leave the reservation. Yeah. But everything's very contained. And, it, and um, I felt like David felt really, I'm not sure if trapped is a good word, but he felt a bit suffocated, I think, especially at the at the end of the story, which, <laughs> which was really heartbreaking. I wasn't sure if you kind of see this word community just being used as always positive and and it doesn't really, the word itself doesn't solve all the problems that I think a lot yeah. of people feel. Yeah, I'm thinking of like when people put out like a community effort to stop X, Y, or Z and they they work. But I think one of the main things is, is like nobody likes to, I don't think anybody likes to admit they've been wrong or they've mistreated people, you know? And so I feel like when we put a community together in an effort to stop something, we have a number of people who have perhaps contributed to the problem. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. like, I don't know. I don't know what, what the solution is. Um, it, it's just a difficult one. And perhaps, perhaps, you know, the solution is as simple as, you know, just acknowledging it. Right. Mm-hmm. And being forgiving and, and moving forward. But mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's, it's a tough thing to talk about and to write about too. Yeah. Because, of course, we all want to be good people who are accountable to others. But I can think of some instances where I, I know I've wronged people and and I don't, and to, I don't want to think about those moments. Yeah. So, um, Morgan, if I could turn a little attention to the title of your collection. I don't know if we're born the same years, but a lot of your um, references, I felt like I grew up watching, too. The characters spend a lot of time watching movies and t- TV, 
And um, I wanted to ask you, why did you name the collection Night of the Living? Or based, it was my understanding that it was a play on Night of the Living Dead. Is that yes. right? Okay. Yeah. And why was that the source of inspiration? And also couldn't help but note that some of your references are were somewhat newer, but I was it was taken aback when you you named uh, Roll Nose Night with Peter Jennings and Smoke Signals. I really like the line where um, someone said we watched it for was it American history class. Yeah. So I watched it Smoke Signals twice for my American history class in high school. I laughed out loud because. I actually didn't think of the movie until I read it in your story. Um, what kind of world or cultural zeitgeist did you imagine when you're describing these kind of cultural artifacts? Yeah, I think, you know, with Smoke Signals was really a a shot at um, publishing at that, at that time and still today because we kind of hit on this earlier, but like publishers mm-hmm. just churn out what can be sort of like fetishized, you know, misery porn type stuff. And I'm not saying smoke signals is that, but, you know, Sherman Alexi produced a lot of work that definitely fed into that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember, I remember growing up in the two thousands, well, in the nineties and the two thousands. And when Sherman Alexi came onto the scene, like his work was like the authoritative, like Mm -hmm. work of indigenous people, like Mm -hmm. non-indigenous people, you know, idolized him as did native people. When Smoke Signals came out, I'm pretty sure our local theater was like sold out from just our tribe going to watch it. You know, mm-hmm. it was it was that big of a deal. But eventually it became a stand in or an easy way to explain, you know, indigenous experience. Um, and so that was why I really put that in there is because it was like there's more to indigenous culture and fiction than smoke signals, right. um, even though it is a, a good film and the story that it, it's based off of is is good, too. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, that one I put in there for a particular reason, kind mm-hmm. of like a like a middle finger type thing. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. Yeah. I think people kept bugging me. They were like, well, what what? what station is he watching like in workshop and type uh-huh, th- and type uh-huh. of things until finally uh, I was like, well, fine, you know what? I'll, I'll put ABC. it in here. <laughs> yeah. He's watching ABC. He's watching Peter Jennings, <laughs> but it was also um, to get the the scene right too, because yeah. that um, satellite or whatever it was, yeah. was mm-hmm. like, he had actually talked about it. So I was like, okay, this is where the story takes place. So I have to mm-hmm. put that in there. Um, so all of those, I think did kind of like, I didn't want to f- make the reader feel like they were trapped in the 90s or the, or no. the 2000s. Mm-hmm. So um, I tended to focus on things that I still feel like are sort of timeless in, in a way. Um, but with the title, Night of Living Res, Night of Living Dead, the book was originally called The Little Yellow House. And um, I mean, what do you want to buy? A book called The Little Yellow House or Night of the Living Res? <laughs> So from like a commercial, from like a capitalistic standpoint, I was like, I got to go with the latter, but I liked it. I, I, I actually like, I liked the way it, I feel like the book speaks a lot to popular culture mm-hmm. in, in a lot of subtle ways. And the title is one of those ways that I think keeps the reader's attention or, or mm-hmm. sensitivity to that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a question that, I had written in the synopsis that doesn't appear on the book, but appears on like um, e-versions 
the the synopsis originally starts with it says how do the living come back to life mm-hmm. and i i feel like that's a big question throughout the book when we see d and his mom yeah. and fellas and they're alive yes but in like a metaphorical sense they're kind of like not they're they're sort of just like drifting mm-hmm. um and that obviously gets me thinking about zombies zombies are they're dead but not dead you know and so i thought it was this cool little connection and i was kind of like we'll see what readers think about it um mm-hmm. and it's funny you'd brought up that you read it and you thought it was going to be horror um because you're not alone a lot of i, I love reading the reviews to my books i love the bad reviews and i love oh, when no. people are like this is not horror they're like this was marketing completely terribly <laughs> oh, gosh, wrong yeah. and it's always, it's always funny but um yeah and during Halloween, like the book was on like horror lists. And I'm like, did you, <laughs> I'm like, did you read the book? Did, did, yeah. did you like, I guess there is like a yeah. horrific element to it, but yeah. um, there's no, that's so no funny. flesh eating undead. <laughs> so I try to always reread books when I'm preparing for interviews. Did, are the stories, do they all take place at night? It's a good question. Um, Because I felt like it was upon a second reread, but I I don't think you explicitly ever talked about time. Yeah, there is. Yeah, they don't all take place during night. Um, Yeah, I know like Food for the Common Cold, for example, starts Mm -hmm. kind of in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. um, Because I remember somebody asking me, they're like, I didn't realize it was daytime when they were oh, reading it okay. I and that. I revised and added it, but you, you are right. Like I am not like, I don't know. I tend to, that's one of the, I think one of my, one of my issues as a writer, every writer has like an issue or issues or, you know, a drawer full of them. Um, it's like, I don't specify time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so readers will be like, Oh, I didn't, by the time I say the sun was shining, they're like, Oh, I thought this was, you know, any, we were in an eclipse or something. I don't know. Uh, um, okay. But um, no, you're not wrong. <laughs> but just following all the tense moments, to me, I imagine when I'm picturing what was going on, like when the, uh, he was, well, we'll talk about it for the next question. When he was in the sweat house, for some reason I thought he was, it was at night because all those moments I thought, well, of course they won't want to be caught in the daytime, but that was just me making speculation. In this question. Yeah. So... Oh, I, I'm sorry if I'm smiling creepily, but I'm just remembering my response, my initial read of this story. I really want to talk about Antiques Roadshow, and I thought it deserved this one question because it was such a major catalyst for the event in Earthspeak. Um, as David is experiencing a methadone withdrawal, he finds himself observing his surroundings at a sweat lodge. He mentions that, this is in quotes, the res- reservation was a barrel ground, and this reservation was for the dead. So I guess it comes back to what we're talking about. Um, is there something you're calling attention to, especially because I found that the story was so much built on museum artifacts, how non-Indigenous, non-Natives perceive the reservation, and what David later will say, the earth chest? Yeah, I'd heard the story. I think early on and in, in a jar, David's mom says something that, the reservation was a burial ground a long mm-hmm. time ago. And I'd heard that growing up. I don't know the the truth to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, I was really interested in that story when I was, when I was 
younger, I found like somebody had made a dugout in the woods and it went down into the earth and there was like a fire pit. It was very cool. Um, I've never seen it again. And I was like, I'm going to do that here. I'm going to be like the sweat lodge he finds is the thing that goes down in the earth. Mm-hmm. You know, D in this story is very much like at the cusp of either I'm going to get better or I'm not going to get better. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted him to be in this place, you know, under, under the ground, right. He's alive, but at the same time, he's also not alive. Right. He's, he's buried alive in a sense. He's very, you know, he's in the earth's, in the earth's chest um, that almost like a safe space in, in a way, right. That this, this entity is holding you. And it's there that I think he's able to sort of like overcome, you know, or ultimately get the courage to do what what needs to be done, which is to go home, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even though he finds himself in the boiler room for quite a while. But yeah, I think as a writer, I'm always like interested in dichotomies. Like, because I feel like if we lean too far into one thing, a story will ride on symbol. And mm-hmm. it's not that I don't, it's not that I don't like symbol. It's just that we can miss so many viewpoints or you know important ideas if we don't go the other way so mm-hmm. as much as he's on the ground he's also under the ground in this story and I wanted it to be complicated in that way and I don't I don't know if I have like a, a, a good answer other than being like I just want to spin this in a way that people don't know what's going on because I kind of don't know what's going on thinking when they were colluding about this breaking in to steal the artifacts. I thought that was so interesting to read in your story collection because the, the current discourse about museums is returning to their rightful homes and countries. And I thought that there was something different about this. Like they were trying to rationalize why it makes sense to to take their, their tribe's um, artifacts to, well, in the story. Listeners should really read the collection, but I just thought, I don't know, like horrifying, but also very funny. I don't, again, like I don't know how I'm reacting appropriately, but it was just the way that they were inspired because they were watching an Antiques Roadshow, and then, then, you know, they were like convincing themselves to actually do it. I thought it was just it was funny, but then, as you do in your stories, it kind of drops the emotional humor into something very, you know, like up and down for me to read. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's funny. I think it's hilarious that they wanted to do that. And and now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, I should have made it so like it the story opened with like the tribe having gotten a bunch of root clubs returned to them yeah. by like non-natives, and then mm-hmm. these natives go in to steal it. That would have been funny, I think. Even funnier. Follow story. Follow yeah. Story. Yeah. Oh, Morgan, I I I don't know if this is too soon to ask, but are you working on anything that you can share with us or what what you might be working on in the future? Yeah, so um, I actually have my next book, a novel coming out from Tin House in 2024. That's called Fire Exit. So I'm working on edits right now with my editor. Um, and then once that's done, I'm going to return to a another novel I started. It's tentatively called right now. Uh, the year of the frog clan. And it's about a woman who 
is trying to regain custody of her three children that she's lost for the 10th time. And this is like her final opportunity. So that's sort of the premise I have right now. Um, and I'm just sort of writing from everybody's perspectives and trying to figure stuff out. Um, but I'm really, really drawn to it. There's something about that book that feels like it emotionally, it, it emotionally connects to pages sort of narrative, even though it's not page, you know, people have asked me, they're like, do you ever plan to write from pages point of view again? And I'm like, no, but I'm working on this book that I feel like is sort of like her doppel, her doppelganger or something, you uh-huh. know? Um, well, so yeah, I love Paige, so I'm I'm really happy to hear this. I'm sorry for interrupting. I'm just no, no, not really at all. excited yeah. about the project. So yeah, her her mannerisms, the way that this character acts. I can't remember her name. <laughs> it's how long I've been been away from it, but um, is very much reminds me of Paige. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those are the things I'm working on right now. That's great. So this is your debut, right? The story collection is your debut. It is. Yep. How is it shifting from? I know we kind of said like maybe the stories could be perceived as a novel. Is your writing different now that you're doing a novel, which maybe is more chronological than not? Like, is that a challenge for you? Um, Not really. Okay. It's, you know, I think it, it it is very different because like I feel like the way that this book functions is like many books that were published this year actually are kind of like outliers in mm-hmm. that we don't know, like they don't quite fit neatly into boxes. Um. But the book I'm working on now is is like a novel novel. Mm-hmm. Um, so people won't pick it up and be like, this is a story collection. You know? like <laughs> that, 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 I'm avoiding that this yeah. time around. Mm-hmm. That's so exciting. I hope that I, I can have you back on to talk about your upcoming novel. So congratulations on to. everything. Thank you. Morgan. I'm, if I sound a bit like over-enthusiastic, I'm sorry. It's just I love your story collection so much. Um. So I was really happy. Thank you so much for everything. Thank you of so course, much for your thank time. Of course, thank you. Of course, you're welcome. Thank you for having me, and I'd love yeah. to be back sometime. Have a good rest of the day. Wish you a really, really happy, prosperous new year. Thank you, Anne. It was so lovely to meet. Thank you, Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at anandroid. I'd also like to thank Mariah Behrens for creating the cover art for my podcast and my partner, Matthew Sample, for his music and edits. See you next time.